Romans chapter 12 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew or the seat in front of you. And I encourage you to follow along as we read. Romans chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. I want to speak to you this morning on the topic, what is logical? What is logical? Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectioned to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father God, thank you so much for this wonderful passage. And I thank you, Lord, that we're starting now on this new division in Romans. And I pray it's helpful. I pray, Lord God, that you'll just speak to us through it and help us, Lord, to pattern our lives after it. I pray you'd fill me with your spirit today, Lord. Help me, Father. Let there be no, no sin, no, no uh, anything in my life that would hinder my usefulness today. I pray, Father, that you just fill me and use me and help me, Lord, to say the things I ought to say boldly and loudly and clearly and accurately. And I pray for your protection to not say anything I ought not. May everything that comes forth from here today be your word and only your word. And may uh, we come away from this place knowing it is indeed logical. It is indeed reasonable for us to lay ourselves on the altar of sacrifice for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here begins now the third and final division in the book of Romans. We've been in Romans now for half a year. I think this is the 27th message that we've looked at in the book of Romans. And, of course, obviously we're not done. But uh, we've seen that there are multiple divisions in Romans. In the first eight chapters, uh, that's the first division, we saw the great doctrine of justification by faith developed. 
We know that Paul, uh, very early on in chapter 1, stated his theme for this book. It's in chapter 1, verse 16. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in that gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That's what is developed in those first eight chapters. That truth. It's been expanded, it's been expounded wonderfully, and that was the first major division in the book of Romans. And then, in the next three chapters, chapters 9 through 11, we we learned what those truths meant to one particular group of people primarily, and that's God's chosen nation, the, the, the children of Israel. And we didn't go into any great depth on that at all. Actually, we just tried to make some application from it to ourselves. But it was a second major division in the book of Romans. Well, now we come to the last division in Romans, chapters 12 through 16. And here we're going to answer the question, so what? We used to have a a, a wonderful pastor and teacher here, Pastor Phil Ross, and most of you remember Pastor Phil. And he was very fond of asking that question of any particular text in the Bible. He would look at a particular text and he'd say, so what? What does that mean to me? What is the application to my soul, to my life? Well, how, do, how, how does this uh, change how I should live? And, and that is what Paul is doing in chapters 12 through 16. This is the application part of everything. And frankly, I think that we'll probably enjoy this part because there's some very good things in chapters 12 through 16. That first section was doctrinal. The last This last section is practical. Those first chapters described what we believe, and these last describe the lifestyle that should flow from that belief. The first tell us what we must do to be saved. These last ones tell us what we must do now that we are saved. And so let's notice this grand statement that introduces the final section of the letter. I read the whole chapter, but we're really only going to look at the first verse today. And I want you to notice that grand statement that he introduces it with is a single statement, I think, that sums up everything he said in the previous 11 chapters and also everything he's going to say in the last five chapters. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So do you see it, Christian? Do you see what he's saying? If we could make it very, very simple, here's what he's saying. Things are different now. Our lives are changed now. And therefore, our lifestyle should be different now. There's a little chorus that we've quoted from multiple times. I love it because it says it so well. But it says things are different now. Something happened to me. When I gave my heart to Jesus, things are different now. It was changed. It must be when I gave my heart to Him. Things I loved before have passed away. Things I love far more have come to stay. Things are different now. Something happened that day when I gave my heart to Him. That's what he's talking about in these final chapters of the book of Romans. And so why are things different now? Well, I think it's explained in, in that very important opening phrase. He says, I beseech you, therefore. And of course, we all know What we're supposed to ask when we see the word therefore, right? What is that therefore there for? What is Paul saying when he says, I beseech you, therefore? And uh, what he's telling us there is that his arguments now are based on his arguments to date. His arguments now in these final chapters are all based on what he has taught us up to this point. It's pointing back to what he has already said in those previous 11 chapters. He's saying, because of all God has done for us in the gospel, because of the mercies of God, 
That's the way he describes it here, which have been so gloriously described. Because we are justified by faith, we should therefore demonstrate certain changes in our lives. We could talk about a lot of things from this passage, but I want us to concentrate on two key phrases in this first verse. The first is, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Let's spend some time talking about that. And then let's also talk about that it is your reasonable service. Those two phrases. There's other things in there. We'll save that for your study. Let's notice, first of all, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, notice he does say there, by the mercies of God. We touched on that a moment ago, but that little phrase might be translated, and perhaps a little more clearly, because of God's mercies, or in light of God's mercies. In other words, he's saying, because of what God has done for you and for me in justifying us by faith, we should do this. We should present our bodies a living sacrifice. Why? Because of the mercies of God. And I know some will instinctively push back when I start going down a road like this. Some might say, you mean there's something as a Christian must do now that I'm saved? A lot of people don't like that when we get to that part of things. It's wonderful to talk about what God has done. But here we're talking about something we as Christians must do. You mean I should behave differently now that I am justified by faith? You mean there are expectations, changes God wants in me? And yes, that is exactly what Paul is saying here in chapter 12 and in all the remaining chapters of this book. Now that we are saved, we are to live like we are saved. That's what he's saying. Think of, think of the mercies of God that we have learned about in this wonderful gospel according to Paul's letter. Think about what we've learned. We learned that we who were lost in sin have been gloriously justified by the shed blood of the Savior. We learned that His death on the cross satisfied the judgment required by our sin. We learned that because Jesus Christ died in our place, we are now justified freely by His love, uh, by His blood. Because we are so justified, we have peace with God. We have been adopted into the family of God and are joint heirs with Christ Himself. We have eternal life. We have eternal peace. We have eternal hope. We have eternal joy. We have everything. And it cost us nothing because Christ paid everything to give it to us. That's the mercies of God that he's describing here. And he says, because of these mercies, in light of these mercies, you and I are to present our bodies a living sacrifice to him. It is a recurring theme seen throughout the Bible. It's not just here. It's all throughout the Bible that once we're saved, we ought to live differently. We know that's all through. While good works and godly lifestyles can't save us in the first place, we know that. We're saved by faith. Paul has certainly hammered... That fact. But good words and good works do follow salvation, don't they? They do flow out of us as the natural result of being saved. We're justified by faith and not works. But once justified by faith, works will flow out of us. We see that all throughout the Bible. It's everywhere. Consider some other verses. How about First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse number 1? Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. Just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. In other words, once we're saved, good works and godly lifestyle should flow from us in ever-increasing measure. How about, uh, how about uh, Romans chapter 6 and verse 13? We saw this a few weeks ago. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Once we are saved, we are to live our lives in a God-focused way. We are to present ourselves to God to be used for His glory. 
How about uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by works, but works flow out of us once we're saved. We see it all throughout Scripture. How about Romans chapter 6 and verse 19? I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Once we lived lives defined by sin and unholiness. But now that we have trusted Christ, now that we are saved, we're to live lives defined by righteousness and holiness. One commentator put it like this. He said, because, of God's, because God's grace and mercy are offered freely, believers must live godly lives. Out of gratitude, not merit. The will of God is that we be saved through Christ and then live like Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. Sacrificed bodies. That should be the result of God's mercies in our lives. Because we are saved, we are to lay our bodies on the altar of sacrifice to God. We are to give ourselves to Him without reservation. We are to live for Him without hesitation. We are His and His alone. In Genesis, we read the story of Abraham and Isaac. You remember the story? God said to Abraham one day, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, and I want you to go up on the top of Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him there to the Lord. Amazing story. Abraham took Isaac and they went trotting up on the top of the hill. Laid him out on the altar. And I believe, I believe the knife was on the way down when God stopped him. And Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac is one of the key truths in Scripture. And of course is one of the reasons that Abraham is such a central figure in our biblical understanding. Because he was willing to sacrifice his son. He trusted God so much. But you know what we never talk about? We never talk about Isaac's willingness there. Isaac was not a little boy. Isaac was a man. Abraham was an old man. Isaac could have easily said to Dad, Well, are you nuts? I'm not doing this. I'm not getting on that altar. He could have said that. He could have overpowered his aged father and said, Ah, this is not going to happen. But you know what he did somewhere along the line? Isaac also recognized what was going on here. Isaac had to willingly lay himself on that altar. We seldom talk about that. And what a picture it is of how we are to give our bodies to Christ. He, he laid down on the altar, just as Paul is telling us we need to do here. Well, let me, let me point out two different things about this giving of ourselves, giving of ourselves as a sacrifice. I want us to notice, first of all, uh, that it involves our bodies. We are to give our bodies to Him, and I, I think we need to stress that. I don't want to minimize that point, because I think we lose the whole focus of the passage if we minimize that point. He's talking about our bodies here. We are to give our bodies to the God who gave the body of His Son to purchase our freedom and redemption. The sacrifice we return back to Him then is our bodies. And again, there's all kinds of Scripture that we can turn to. This is this, not just this one place where this is mentioned. It's all throughout the Bible. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Well, Philippians chapter 1, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death. 
Or 1 Corinthians 6.13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So it's a simple concept. God wants our bodies. And when we think about it, we think, you know, it's really not that hard to understand. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, says it's simply this. It involves the offering of our bodies. In other words, we must give God the use of our minds, our eyes, our ears, our tongues, our hands, our feet, and our other body parts. It's as simple as that. And so if I'm to lay my body on the altar of sacrifice to God, if I'm to give it to Him, it means this. It means my feet do belong to Him. It means that where I go is under His direction. It means that my hands belong to Him. What I do, my work, my creative output, all of that, my activity, it's under His direction. It means my arms belong to Him. My strength is His to use as He will. My eyes belong to Him. It means I allow Him to direct where I look and what I view and what I see. It means my ears belong to Him. I listen to and hear the things He wants me to. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Sounds simple enough. I I doubt many of us would push back on that. I think we'd all say that's what it means. What about our reproductive parts? Gets quiet when we think about that. But is there any part of our body that's not included in that statement? Any part of it. What parts of our body can we logically or rightly withhold from God? It's so common in our culture to hear, it's my body and I will do with it whatever I want. But this tells, this is telling us exactly the opposite. It's God's. We lay it all on the altar to Him. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your body, all of it, all of it, all of it to Him. John Legend is a uh, singer, songwriter, who's known, I suppose, specifically for a particular song called All of Me. And, of course, it's a love song, obviously sung to some love of his life. And there's a, there's a line in there, a phrase in there that says, All of me loves all of you, all your curves and all your edges, all your perfect imperfections. Give your all to me, I'll give my all to you. He got famous for that song. And we understand that sentiment perfectly, don't we? when we apply it to the relationship between a man and a woman, as he is singing it. Uh, because I love her, I give everything to her. Because I live, love him, I give everything to him. We understand that. We have no trouble with the concept that that means our bodies, and that means every part of our bodies. We have no trouble with that. But so it is with God, Christian. That's what he's saying here. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. He wants all of you. Oh. Well, it involves our bodies. Uh, the other thing I wanted to draw out of that is, is this other phrase. I want us to notice that it's a living sacrifice. The sacrifice is living. In other words, it's active. It's continuing. It's an active life of service in Christ-like love. It's not something that we do one time. We present our bodies to God one time and then that's it. It's a continual sacrifice that's renewed every day. I heard one preacher one time say, the problem with living sacrifices is that they can crawl off the altar. And of course it's true, isn't it? And so that's why we start each day with something like, God, I give myself to you today. God, I lay myself on the altar today. God, this body is your body today. To use as you will this day, every day. The sacrifice is living. It's active. It's continuing. He also says it's holy and it's acceptable to God. I'm not going to delve into those. I'll leave that for your study and reflection. But all those things are important. 
So present your bodies a living sacrifice. Let's notice the second thought that I want us to see here, and that is that it is your reasonable service. It's your reasonable service. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now, right off the bat, I know some of you are looking at your Bibles and you're scratching your heads. I know you are. Because some of you who carry your Bibles to church, and by the way, all of you should carry your Bibles to church, but some of you who are are, noticing a problem. We use the New King James Version from the pulpit. We use the New, that's what's in our, that's what's in our, in our pews as our standard translation. That's what all of our teachers teach from and our preachers preach from. That's what I'm reading from this morning. And it renders the last part of verse number one as, which is your reasonable service. However, if you're holding a different one, some of you are carrying the New American Standard or the New International Version. The New American Standard says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Huh. says something different. The NIV says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Huh. says something different. So which is right? Well, both of them are right. You see, the Greek language is very ambiguous right here. The Greek language in which the New Testament was originally given and of which all of our English Bibles are just translations. It's ambiguous. The words are logican latrian. Logican latrium, and it can actually be rendered either way. Logican is the word from which we get our English word logical, and it means reasonable or rational or logical. However, it can also mean spiritual. It has that other meaning. The word latrian means either service or worship. So either of those translations can be, we can go back to the Greek and we can say that's correct. You have to kind of look at the context and decide. Uh, And I think when we look at the context, uh, I believe the New King James or the King James rendering is more accurate. Reasonable service. John Murray noted that reasonable or rational is a more literal rendering. Logikos has given us the English word logical, which means reasonable or according to reason, and this should also be the preferred meaning. If for no other reason than because in the very next verse, Paul talks about Christians being transformed by the renewing of their minds. Logic. Reason. So then it's reasonable to conclude that we ought to give our bodies as a sacrifice. It's the logical outgrowth of all Paul has taught us about the gospel. It's logical to say that because he has done so much for us, we ought then to live for him. It's logical to conclude that giving my all to him is the right response to his giving his all to me. Jim Elliott was a missionary. And as a young missionary, he wrote something that uh, will ever follow his name. It's, it's a famous thing that everybody knows about him. He wrote in his journal, he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And, of course, we know how the story of Jim Elliot ended. He was killed. He was martyred by the very uh, people that he went to take the gospel to. Was it logical for Jim Elliot to believe that no sacrifice was too great. In his comments on Romans, Warren Wiersbe tells of another missionary. He tells of a fellow by the name of William Borden, who, and I'll just read this, he said he came from a a wealthy, privileged family. He was a graduate of Yale University, and he had the promise of a wonderful and lucrative career before him. But he felt a call to serve God as a missionary in China and left for the field, even though his family and friends thought him an absolute fool. 
for going. After a short time away, and even before he reached China, Borden contracted a fatal disease and died. He had given up everything to follow Jesus. He died possessing nothing in this world. But Borden of Yale did not regret it. And we know this because he left a note as he lay dying that said, No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Whereas we said, like so many others, he found the service of Christ to be eminently reasonable and he gained a lasting reward. Was it logical for Borden to feel the way he did? That no sacrifice was too great. We have spoken a lot about the persecuted church lately. Today and last Sunday are days that have been set aside as the International Days of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. This past Wednesday evening in prayer meeting, we showed several videos uh, relating what some are suffering from Christ. We learned about several real-life examples. We learned about a young woman by the name of Sarah. Sarah lived in China, or lives in China. She was uh, imprisoned and tortured in prison for six years simply because she refused to sign a piece of paper uh, recanting, basically, her faith and turning in other Christians. During those six years, she was busily employed making Christmas lights to send to us here in America. Next time you look at a Christmas light, you might want to pray for the persecuted church. Hmm. Was it reasonable for Sarah to live under torture for six years rather than simply signing a piece of paper? Was that logical? We learned also about a young woman named Lena. I think she was from Syria. She and her husband had a conversation with their children. And she told them that uh, men might come. Men might ask them to renounce Jesus Christ. They told their children that there might be blood, there might be pain. They told their children that they might have to die for Jesus, but they were not to speak against Him. They told their children that if someone tried to come and do this, that they were to simply remind them that Jesus loved them and they forgive them. Is it logical? Logical for Lena to be willing to lay down her life, her husband's life, the lives of her children, rather than renounce the Savior? A few weeks back, an absolutely crazed, insane gunman walked onto the campus of a community college in Oregon. Umpqua, however you say that. Began shooting people. And reports are that he would walk up to somebody and ask them, are you a Christian? And if they said yes, he'd shoot them. (laughs) Was it logical for people to say, yes, I am a Christian, knowing that they were going to get a bullet, rather than simply saying no? And possibly walking away. One of the great heroes of the early church was Polycarp. Polycarp lived from 69 A.D. to 156 A.D. He was probably a disciple of the Apostle John. And he served as the Bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp is one of the more famous martyrs of the early church history. He died as a martyr. And it's recorded that on the day of his death, he said this, when he was asked to recant, when he was asked to blaspheme Christ and turn against Christ, he said this, he said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my King and Savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Polycarp was then burned at the stake, and was pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. And on his farewell he said, quote, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Was that logical? Was it reasonable for Polycarp or any of the other martyrs to choose flames, death, over recanting? Think again about Paul's statement. 
I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Is it logical and reasonable for us to present our bodies living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God? Perhaps C.T. Studd's answer to the question is best. C.T. Studd was also a missionary. He started off as an outstanding uh, cricket player in England. He was, uh, had a great lucrative career ahead of him. He was a freshman at Trinity College, uh, and he had a degree in law. But all of a sudden, he was challenged to become a missionary, and he gave it all up. He forsook his cricketing fame. He, he forsook his family fortune. He followed Hudson Taylor into China, and he returned 21 years later, completely broken in his health, and uh, just bashed down. But unexpectedly then, he received another call, an unmistakable call to go and serve God in Africa. And so he did. He left his, his uh, invalid wife in England and he, he went. And people, of course, thought he was nuts, thought him a fool. And his answer to all who questioned the wisdom of his action was found on a postcard on his desk. And, and this, I think, is the greatest explanation of what Paul is saying. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. So let me leave you with just a few questions this morning as we wrap things up. I wonder this morning, first of all, have you considered the astonishing mercies of God that have been bestowed upon you? And do you think they deserve a response? Number two, I wonder this morning if your body is God's. Have you given it to Him? All of it. I wonder this morning, is your sacrifice living? Do you start each day with some sort of a prayer like this? Lord God, I give myself to you afresh and anew today. Tomorrow's gone. Tomorrow hasn't happened yet. Today, I will serve you. Use me today as you see fit. And then finally, have you reached the logical conclusion that Christians have reached down throughout history, that C.T. Studd put so eloquently, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Is that the cry of your heart? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service.